the spring of 1973, and I'm coming home after a defeat. Every man, woman, and child in my hometown was and heard about how I lost the fight to Norton, just like everybody else all over the world heard. The press will crowd the sport pages with headlines that remind me Muhammad Ali has finished the end of an era. Ali beaten by nobody, his big mouth shut for all times. Most thrilling fight in history. I had to make my comeback. This is, this is, this is the beginning, you know. This is Muhammad Ali reading an opening passage from a very beautiful and moving book, by the way. The greatest, my own story. Muhammad Ali, Random House, the publishers, and written with uh, Dick Durham. And I was thinking, Muhammad Ali, champion, that moment recalled me. Remember how that moment, a lot of people wanted you to be beaten, and a lot wanted you to win. Do you remember it? Yes, sir. You know, whenever I go into the ring, you can always hear the boos, the crowds, the heckles. Many of them were coming for years, and they're determined that they're going to see this man lose. Minim's main object was to see the big mouth beat, the way he talks, his superiority in boxing, his skill. He can't be that great. He's going to fall. One day he's going to get it. And they just determined to come until they see it. And if it happens and they don't see it, they'll feel bad. They just want to be there, even if they have other appointments, other things to do, even if they can't afford it. Some make it their business to be there when that day comes because I got away too many, got away with too many victories upset too many people, whipped them many times, and shocked them, and they want to see it. Finally, it happened with Ken Norton. There's something you said, Muhammad Ali, that some of the people, listen, you're hitting a very important thing, some people who can't even afford it, some of the very powerful want you beat, some who can't even afford it, wanted you beaten. It's something about their own lives missing. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. What is it that wants to make them be part of something that even makes them feel less? You know what I mean? I think all of them want to be great. All people want to be victorious, want to be successful. And when they see it in another man, they naturally might envy it, especially when he talks about it and brags about it and say, I'm going to do this. He's going to fall. I am the king. I am the greatest and keeps doing it. Not only this confidence they don't have, and here's the man expressing it and doing it, and they just want to see him beat many of them. Some like it. It encourages some. But some want to see him beat because he just shouldn't be that cocky and he shouldn't be able to get away with it. I couldn't do it and he shouldn't be able to do it. Let's go back, coming back to Louisville. Who was Muhammad Ali, once upon a time, this kid, the Cassius Clay? Who was Muhammad? Your father was a sign painter. Yes, sign he was painter. a sign painter, still is. Mother's just a little happy going housewife. She had a part time job when money was short to keep us fed and keep kept shoes on her feet going to school. Cassius Clay was just a little kid, just like everybody else, going to school every day, coming home, going out the street and kicking, playing football, and running around and peeping in windows or whatever thing, little devilish, devilish things kids do. Cassius Clay started boxing 12 years old and won the Golden Gloves, the Olympics, the AU, went on turn pro. And my life wasn't too much different from my child. Well, there's something, there's a moment you described earlier in the book, coming back after having won the Olympic gold medal. And before I ask you about that, your father, you always felt in the book that he had possibilities 
of being something even better too, didn't he? He had these possibilities. This is one of the things that hit me about you and your life on the book. They're looking for other possibilities. And this is also your old man, your father. Yeah, he's a great singer. He imitated Perry Como, Nat Kinko, uh, Roland Hayes, all type great singers. He figured if he left Louisville the South, he's coming up, he had a chance to be great, and I think he could have. And it stays on his mind all the time that he could have been a great singer. Today he still tries to sing. Yeah. So you come back to Louisville, and just about that time, by the way, if Emmett Till lived, he'd have been your age, wouldn't he? Right. Is that? Do you remember that case when you came yeah. back there? Yeah, you remember reading about why he was all tore up and burned up and everything, and eyes out of his head, and that really made me think about myself. And he's a kid like myself, and the Chicago thing went down, mm -hmm. and that happened, and uh, really made me real bitter. And to think about that, explain it all in the book. Yeah, there's a certain moment. When you came back from Louisville, and you had won, you were the champion, won the golden medallion, and you came into that restaurant. Went to the restaurant, always was a kid who liked to experiment and look around, and, uh, think about various things, and always wonder why things happen. And I said, I got my gold medal now, I'm going here to eat, and been the champion of the world, beat everybody in the world, and I know they can't turn me down Lady took my order and told me she can't serve Negroes and went back to the kitchen and told the manager, he said, I don't care about Cash's play. And he came out and, and a little scuffle arrived verbally and this motorcycle game, Frog and his boys came in. <laughs> and they, Frog is the motorcycle. Yeah. They didn't like it and they started a lot talking and what's the call me Olympic nigga and all that stuff. And we got to scuffling, I beat up a couple of them. Anyway, whatever, after all this scuffle and getting put out and seeing the metal had no power, I just went to Jefferson County Bridge and thought about all the people I've beaten and all the countries I represented and couldn't even eat my own hometown. I said, this metal ain't worth a damn thing. I just threw it in Ohio River. Yeah. But that's what you, now that particular moment is one that you remember pretty well, isn't it? Did that sort of open your eyes a little? Did you know about it before? What? About that, you'd be treated that way coming back. No, well, we, I knew blacks couldn't eat in restaurants. What kicked it off one day, four winter the Olympics, saw this African from the University of Louisville, Kentucky, going down the street and having the rose and the turpins and little things, and they went to go in this white restaurant. And I had a, a lady, Theater, I mean, or the white theater. And the lady said something to the manager. He said, It's okay, let him in. They're not Negroes. And that really shook me up. They were so black until they were blue. I used to think it's because of our color. And ever since then, you know, I had this on my mind when I went back in this restaurant years later. I said, Well, I'm the world champion now. Beat everybody in the world. And they're on the spot now. Let them put me out. And when I got put out after all that, I said, Man, this thing ain't nothing. I just threw it away. Mm, yeah. Then you saw us both. If you were a turban, you'd have made it. If you were well, a turban. One day we went down the street, and uh, me and my friend Ronnie King talked about in a book called Tootie. We put on a little, little African robe one day, and we was talking. 
Basu do come to go menacing Lamana want to go. And people looking at us real funny, they didn't know who we were. And so you you you, you could have gotten a restaurant that way. Oh, well, we may it, have got in, yeah. Yeah, Ronnie is the kid who was with you that day in that restaurant when you Right. When you were humiliated. I suppose that's a big thing, is remembering a certain humiliation. That sticks and Nowadays that. I don't pay no attention to it. These people were small minded and the same people now today probably let anybody in the restaurant times have changed. People ain't like they used to be. You know, I'm thinking, I watched the fight at the Riviera Theater, the, the Zaire fight with Foreman. The Riviera Theater in Chicago was a poor neighborhood, but there was some black, but there was some southern white, too. And there were some DPs, and they all rooting for you. This is the interesting right, part. Right, right, right. Because they seem to be the outsiders, all the outsiders. Right. So it wasn't just the blacks who were rooting for you, you see. Right. Everybody. I mean, like when I followed Joe Frazier, Second time in Madison Garden, going into eighth and ninth round, all the audience got up, ninety percent white. Ali, 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 you know, racial problems and things ain't like they used to be, and people are getting educated now in their minds, not thinking like it no more. And the time I was coming up, I was right at the end of a few things. I was on the end of all this stuff, and it was just getting ready to break. You know, I didn't experience much of this. But you know why I'm going to ask you a question now. Why do you think it is that always in this particular theater, so many different people there, why were they rooting for you, the outsider? Well, I think the masses root for me because they're scuffling. They've been persecuted and they figure by the high taxes and, and uh, uh, whatever. They've underdogs. People are basically underdogs as a whole. And the things that I say from black, my people, and the freedom of all people, and the way I speak out, and the title that I have, and the, and I don't let this stop me from recognizing the everyday man. And I think this is what they recognize, whether they be black or white, the mass of the people are hardworking people. And the things I say in the places I go and things I do, and the odds have been so much against me, they see themselves in there. They don't see me or they don't see color. They see themselves in there fighting against untold odds and, and looking to stop somebody from predicting things about me, like I'm going to be beat or destroyed, and they just pretend that's them. And it's so much against me sometimes until they're with me because I'm underdog. And it's, just like, it's like cowboys and Indians. You're watching a movie, and you see 10,000 Indians and 12 cowboys. Now, you take the black militants. You take the blacks who totally believe the most violent against whites, they would be right there rooting for the whites to be the Indians because there's so many Indians and just a few little fellas there, they put themselves in that spot. You know, they see Indian coming, he jumping off horses, shoots him, then another Indian's crawling in the wagon and shoots him, and Tim was coming this way. It's so much against him until although in reality he might not like the white, but he's with him now because so many odds against him. And they see myself like that. They don't see color. They just put themselves in opposition. And they see the press talking this. They see the odd maker saying this. They see this is going to be a miracle if he win. So they're pulling for me to win so I can beat so many odds. See? That's interesting. Two things. They can identify with yeah. that. So the underdog, they're scuffling. And here's an underdog who's also the outsider. At the same time, early in this conversation, those others 
the envious ones. Uh, so the two, two currents are at work here, and you seem to be the person, in this case the heavyweight champion, who seems to stir both and suddenly there's ferment. I suppose one of the things in this book, by the way, it's a very beautiful book, the greatest, uh, Muhammad Ali uh, done with Dick Durham, Random House, the publishers. In it, it stands that you take certain positions and never was aware of the n amount of pressure on you when you first came out for black Muslimism, when you first met Malcolm X. They wanted you to disavow, is that it? The pressures were uh, overwhelming, weren't they? Yeah, Bill McDonald, the promoter there who's passed, he, he, uh, Heard that I was or Malcolm X was at my house visiting, stayed for a few days. Muslim women were cooking, and he was disturbed to find out that I went to New York to an Islamic rally. He didn't like that, and he uh, told me a few days before the fight came to Miami Beach Auditorium. Chris Dundee was there, and everybody was boxing promoters. I said, You're Muslim, are you? And he said, Yes, I love it. I'm not yet, but I might want to join one day. He says, well, we're going to have to counsel the fight because that purpose is going to hurt the gate. And I said, well, if you're going to counsel the fight, because of my religion, counsel it. I walked out of the office. He said, well, fight talk. I packed my bus up, black, went to Blackside Town, giving him a drive back to Louisville, my hometown there. He sent his secretary over, some fellow from California, came over pleading, please, champ, please, champ. Everything's okay. The fight will still be over. The promoter's just upset to find out that you were Muslim. Please, he says. I says, well, as long as you can accept my religion and, and everything, I'll fight. But I'm not going to give it up. I'm just for a little fight. To find, to find my lead, Elijah Muhammad, my black people, God himself, just for some money. The hell with the fight. I'm not going to make no public statement. I'm not with that man. So, uh... After they found out, but for a while I thought that the fight was off. The big thing where God has blessed me, I truly thought the fight was off. And I was going to really go home and look for a job or, or do something. I didn't know what I was going to do. I know we're going to deny Elijah Muhammad and all my people. No, Lord, daggone it. I believe if God, our laws, God, and if Elijah Muhammad was a messenger of God, I said, why would they add it up? Why would God punish me for standing up for truth? Anyway, Packing the bus, the man came back and told me to fight still on. Now that I've took my stand, I'm Muhammad Ali. The world knows it. I'm built as that. I forgot the name's Clay. And I can fight anywhere I want to fight. And I got passed now. So I'm now waiting for some other trial to come up. I don't know what that's going to be. Something's going to come yeah, up. It's going too good. There's always, <laughs> there's always something going to come up. Gonna I'm going to ask about the big trial in a minute. Your stand on the war, of course. But the name. You're always... For a long time, they wouldn't accept the name Ali. And you point out that Jack Benny's name was something else, that Dean Martin's name was something else, mm -hmm. Joe, that Danny Thomas's name was something else. But no one ever challenges that. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, during the days that uh, I had these name problems, I enjoyed it because I was promoting it and I was waking up other people. Now, Lou Alcindo, his name is Kareem Jabbar. Ball player named Walt Hazard and his Abdul Rahman, singer Joe Tex. His name is Yusuf Haziz, Leroy Jones. You got his name? I forgot. Uh, He's got a name. Imamo Baruch. Yeah, yeah. They all now waking up to this. So what I'm saying is that I enjoyed it. One night I was in Madison Square Garden. Somebody was fighting. 
And that was supposed to be in a deuce. They said, what name? They said, we can't call you that Muhammad. I said, well, I won't be in a deuce. So I stayed out and did them, but they knew I was there, but they didn't call me up. It just goes to show you how you have to fight for what you believe and just take a stand on what's right, and you'll be blessed. And now they put Muhammad Ali in the garden, puts it up, big black and white print. The first one in the inducement. Things change. I mean, they don't lynch people no more. They don't... The, the the racial problems and the castrating and the burning and the slavery, things change, you know, things. But there's always change. something new. You, you said a minute ago, things are going too good to expect a new challenge. Yeah, something's going to come up. Well, so we mind. come to the big one, the Vietnam War, and you said, I wonder if you have nothing against the Viet Cong, and, that, and then the fur began to fly. Yeah, I made a statement that was true, but... It was just one time then, it was bold. I said, I have no quarrel with the vehicle. <laughs> now four was all over. They all started saying and got out. <laughs> but I think the pressure's on you, because, see, heavyweight champions, American athletes, are not supposed to do this. They're supposed to be good boys. <laughs> Did you say Roy? No, I said they're you're supposed to be good Good little boys. Oh, Troy, Troy. Troy, Roy. Oh, he, he, I, he, 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 I thought of Dempsey and Tony and the others. And you know. uh, did you say Joy? Oh, you said boy. <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> yeah, you know, well, black or white. I think if I was a white man, I can't put them on color or race. If I was a white man, I'd call more hell because I, the whites have really privileges to go places, you know. And they're really the Americans, and they have they first-class citizens, you might say. We all are, but, you know, they're treated like it. And they would, the white, I think, would catch more hell than me. I had a little fight. Well, I'm not free. Well, I'm still catching hell. I can say we fought in the Japanese, we fought in the German war, Korea. We fought in all the wars, and still we don't have no land we can call ours. I could do all that. But a white man would really catch hell if he did what I did. I had some sympathy for you know, I'm black or slave. But a white man, he had no excuse. He'd really been in trouble. So I don't think this happened because I was just black. It happened worse because I was white. Well, it happened because you were resisting the war. That's yeah. why it happened. Yeah, and then I had so many people with me, so many long-haired, young, white youth, you understand, and blacks in the world itself that never was popular with everybody. So I wasn't out there. World War II, when the world, all that war we really had, if America was in trouble, I'd been in more trouble. We just had an unpopular wall that was debatable anyway, so it wasn't too hard for me. And I just got by easy. So many people went to jail. I, did, I had the public and threat of trouble in other countries helped me. But what about the little man, black or white, who's in jail for not liking it? Don't nobody know he's in jail. He's not been praised for being having a particular stand. I didn't really suffer. Everybody was watching me. I was rich. The world saw me. I had lawyers to fight it. I was getting credit for being a strong man. So that didn't really mean nothing. What if I remember the man that had to go to jail named Joe Brown or Sam Jones, who don't nobody know who's in the cell. You understand? During his time, ain't got no lawyer's fees to pay. And when he get out, he won't be praised for taking a stand. So he's really stronger than me. I had the world watching me. I ain't so great. I didn't do nothing that's so great. What about the little man don't nobody know? He's really the one. Yeah, I see. You were even you spent some time in Dade County Jail in Miami because yeah, of this. And you seven, saw some seven, of the guys you're talking about there. Yeah, I spent seven days just a traffic violation. 
And man, it's fun to feel him been in a cell all day. You been in jail for anything? You been in jail? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was in jail. I was in jail. And every day you wake up and look at the bars and little sad hallways, couldn't see outside, wait for man to bring your food, have to go to sleep, no TV or nothing. And then you wake up and the next morning, same thing all day, kind of waste out the time. Then you lay down and go to sleep, wake up next morning, same thing, can't go nowhere. Then you go to sleep and wake up next morning, same thing. Then nighttime come, you're not tired, you got tired over and over, and finally you go to sleep. Next thing you know, you're waking up, it's 4 in the morning, you're not sleeping. You got to wait till 8 in the morning, then when 8 in the morning come, you got to wait till 12 noon. When 12 noon come, you got to wait till 5 o'clock. When 5 o'clock come, you wait till 10. Then you don't want to go to bed, and then you roll over. Then you got to fight and go to sleep. The next morning, you start, ah! Ah! It's just this is the best description of a jail routine I've heard. You know, and then, and then you start thinking, how can I get out of They can't be that damn smart. Let me look at these bars. I don't know if I did it. If I can make a run for it. Let me look over that wall. I can't. God, somebody must have thought about this before me. <laughs> he said, God, how did they do Can't get out of no guy way. Then you happen to get a job in the kitchen. That's like going downtown New York just just to go to the kitchen and ride the elevator, see a new scene. I worked in the kitchen. They said, you can work in the kitchen or the laundry or the janitor quarters. What's on you want? I said, give me the kitchen because that way I could get some food. See, I steal chicken legs and put them in my pocket and wrap it up. And, and the fellows would help me. And I go back to my room and I eat that chicken. And then next day I had to hide the bones. So... I know doing the bones, <laughs> so I carry the bones back down until the next day and throw yeah. them away. <laughs> then you're so happy, and then when you go to the waiting room to visit the people in the waiting room, that's like being downtown Las Vegas, just looking at new faces and looking at men and women and other people, you know. Man, then when you get out of that jail, you run. You're so happy to be out. You just run down the street, just happy to run. <laughs> What, why, why didn't you take the safe way out, Muhammad Ali? You were the champion. You were I took no, the safe and, way out. No, I'm no I, mean, I meant when it someone said to you... It was the safe way out. Not going. <laughs> someone said to you, why didn't you... Why didn't you... You could have faked it. You could have gone to training camps and just yeah. given exhibitions and that's all. And somebody, why didn't you do that? Well, because still I have to sign the papers and they could use my name on stamps or something. So Muhammad Ali helped serve the country which will be aiding in some kind of way, even to go over there and not to fight, but just be to be behind the line, serving the food to the soldiers to go fight. Mentally, I'm still helping fight them. See, so I couldn't do nothing. One of the most moving moments in this book is the induction center. Yeah, the induction center. And they wanted you to take that step. A young lieutenant says he called your name. He may have called you Clay or he may have called you Ali. Clay. Clay. But in any event, he wanted to take that step. And the kids are watching you. These are all kinds of kids, black kids and white kids. And they're watching you. You know what's going through my mind? Clean out my cell and take my tail on the trail for the jail without bail. <laughs> Clean out my cell. And take my black tail on the trail to your white jail without bail. Cause it's better they're eating, watching television fed, than in Vietnam with you fools dead. <laughs> That's an improvised poem. <laughs> I know you have a million different things you have to do. 
This is just little touches, cursory. Who are you, the, el the elder that have a co-sale? The, the what? <laughs> I never heard of him. This is a different thing entirely. They two different languages being spoken. He speaks one, I speak one. You speak one, someone speaks another. Each body is himself. That's your theory, that's your credo. Each person is unique, is that right? Right. Right. And the book, of course, deals with the various crises and how the whole world indeed is watching. And finally, triumph again, come back. One last part, and that's the subject of pain. People see you, they watch, and in the beginning, and at the end, you mentioned the aspect of pain itself, pain on this particular craft. Yes, yeah. You go through a lot of pain. You're hitting the ribs, and for a sudden listen the second time, I got hit in training. Fine part in James Ellis to speak of in the book. My rib was sore. I had to hoping that I didn't get hit. I'm glad I got it in one round. God bless me. I don't know what happened if it hit me in that rib. The kid Norton fight, the jaw got broke. Well, the pain was terrible. Getting hit every time I get hit in the teeth, rattling together and scraping. And I've uh, had a lot of pain, sore hands. Novocaine ran out one fight with 15 rounds and knuckles were sore and five rounds couldn't all hit but that hand that hand was hurting so bad and all different fighters experienced different pains ankle fought Ken Norton second time not only was my jaw broke but ankle was twisted closer to San Diego Chargers had to wrap my ankle for the fight out there trying to play golf and clowning and twist my ankle day for the fight I've gone through a lot of pain but this all pays off and of course there's been written about a million words about it and in the book too the various fights particularly the very last one that remarkable one of manila joe frazier joe frazier that one joe frazier and of course the, your use of the technique the unconventional use of the ropes and you violating all the rules that's the other thing you violated all the traditional rules didn't you in a way well, you found something else didn't you well the way of blocking punches with your hand and ducking under them I found out punches are coming in four one hundredths of a second. Four one hundredths of a second. You just don't duck it that quick. You have to, the best thing to do is lean back, pull out of range, and then you're still watching and then counter over his punch. Uh, this is against the laws. Usually you're supposed to weave and bob, uh, lay on the ropes. You know? Yeah. You have to go now. You know what I'd like? You opened reading. You opened reading the beginning when you came back to Louisville. Suppose you look at, read this last passage and we say goodbye for now. Where, where? Well, this is the little last paragraph in the book here on the chapter, the Manila thing. It says, Should I say that the fight we had tonight is the next thing to death? Yes. What I'm saying here in this article, I was so tired. The worst feeling that could have been to that I had was death itself. I felt like fainting. I felt like throwing up. Only thing was in my mind was Frazier's one hell of a fighter. And when the referee, Carlos Palelo, the referee, he looked into Joe's face and his manager's face said as fudge. I knew that they wouldn't let him come out for the 15th round. And 
I was so relieved because I was so tired myself. I had so much pain in my knees. My knees even buckled when I stretched out. Listen, this was a bad feeling. Right there in the middle of the rain, I just laid, felt like laying down. I was drained. I heard the blood pouring in my ears because one of my ears were bleeding. And in the middle of Joe's pounding, I could hear Joe's words coming back to me. You one bad nigga. And I said to him, we're two bad niggas, because you bad too. We don't do no crawling, do we? By that time, this has gone through my mind, Bodine and Angelo listened me up. And they hugged me and take me back to my school. The screams in that crowd were so loud, and yet they were so far away. Then the crowd started pushing, shoving, reporters shouting. They want me from for something. They all were looking for something for me, want me to say something, some words of comment. But I was so tired. Besides, I've already told them and I've already told all of you reading this article. Don't you hear me? I told you, I'm the greatest of all times. Now you can read. <laughs> That's inappropriate, Coda. Billy Holiday, God bless the child. Don't worry about nothing, because he's got his own. Following the conversation with Muhammad Ali. I was thinking of Muhammad Ali's style of fighting, his rather unique style of boxing and jazz. Now, there's a connection, I, I think, without stretching a point too much. In his last two fights, he violated all the traditions and he used ropes. He leaned against the ropes. He was against the ropes and against a, a fighter who a stunt hits very hard. This is suicide. But what he did, as he explained, is he watches and uses and weighs his eyes, never leaving the other's arms and hands. And thus he improvised, an improvisation, the other's strength wearing out while he uses the ropes as an ally. And so there's an ad hoc nature to this too, the suddenness, the aware of astonishment and improvisation. That's jazz too. I think the way Jimmy Rushing sings Gone to Chicago, and an example of another kind of improvisation. Tell him, little Jimmy Rushing, he's been here and gone. Anybody ask you ever wrote this song? Somehow the, the connection, there's a relationship between Jimmy Rushing, little Jimmy Rushing, and big Muhammad Ali. Uh, one young Apollonesque physique, the other Jimmy was Mr. Five by Five, yet both were possessed of that uh, Elan. So we have Nina Simone, and this is, we're approaching Christmas soon as uh, one of those brilliant songs that Bill's and Bill's children go where I send thee. That's what's known as a cumulative carol, Nina Simone. Well, how can we have a jazz program, uh, one that has a set of abundance to it, without Basie? And this is Basie in the Kansas City time and a group, six, and around his colleagues will be Green, Freddie Green at the uh, guitar, Walter Page, the big one at the bass, and 
Joe Jones at the drums and certainly the count. And let me try to guess who the horns are as we hear Basie beat. I was Basie at the organ, playing much, very much influenced in this case, obviously by his mentor, years past, Fat Swaller. Uh, the the um, tenor was Paul Quinichet, and the trumpet was Joe Newman. And that was not his regular drummer at the drums at Joe Jones. That was his friend, uh, Buddy Rich. That was Basie, Beat. I thought little John Henry, John Henry, one of the heroic figures in folklore who helped build, he bought, beat down the machine, though he died with his hammer in his hand in the building, the Big Bend Tunnel. And there's a little John Henry that uh, Alan Lomax sings, and sort of, a call, I might call this Ali-esque kind of song, too. Alan Lomax in one of those favorites down in Texas, little John Henry. And then there was Dinah Washington. And Dinah Washington, her uh, way of living, and short though it was, a tough one, a rough one, a sad one, at the same time, an abundant one, too. And Willow Weep from Me is a song I once heard Billy Holiday sing way back at a little jazz place on its last leg somewhere in, S in South Cottage Grove called the Budland, and about ten people in the house, and there was Billy toward the last days of her life and as beautiful as ever. And she was singing Willow Weep from Me, and about the ten customers there wept uh, for all for themselves, of course, and for everybody. It's the way an artist sings it. This is Dinah, who sings it her way. Uh, you may call that a cool interpretation of that song. Uh, not hard-on-sleeve manner of singing of Dinah Washington here, and as a result of which it's all the more emotional. Perhaps ending with uh, Duke Ellington, East St. Louis, Toodaloo, uh, Muhammad Ali speaks of his shuffle, the, the Ali shuffle. Well, Duke wrote uh, East St. Louis Blues he said, long ago, watching an old man shuffling at the end of a day, tired, walking on this, then is the human shuffle. East St. Louis, Duke. <laughs> 